we really have those like good old slides dug up from 2015 where we say, okay, well, we'll have those different steps where we'll start with solar, then we we'll do solar plus with stationary storage and EV charging. And then in the longer term, we want to have virtual power plants. This is the vision that we have for PowerFlex ultimately is that ability to contribute at the end of the grid to a broader integration of renewables and electrification of transportation by coordinating those assets in an intelligent way. Hello, Raphael. Welcome to Scaling Climate Tech. Hi, Florian. Nice to see you and thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have this discussion together. And so far, I've been lucky to receive many CEOs and climate tech founders on this podcast, but this is the first time I'm receiving the CEO of a company, which is essentially a startup within a larger company, uh, which is uh, what PowerFlex is. So we'll chat about that. And I wanted to have this discussion together because this podcast is about raising the awareness on key climate technologies that will get us to net zero. And startups have a key role to play, but companies and large organizations also have a key role to play and they have unique assets to leverage. So this is really why I want to have you here and we'll get to talk about a lot of interesting topics. And I'd like to anchor a discussion around electric vehicle charging, which is really what PowerFlex does. Understand on-site slow generation, the intelligent software that PowerFlex has, understand the challenges that electric charging poses to the grid and the opportunity as well. We'll talk about vehicle to grid integration or vehicle to X integration and all the exciting opportunities behind that. And also love to hear just about your customers. So the commercial industrial customers, which is really a category of its own in the energy world. And obviously about your own journey, about the journey of PowerFlex within this broader and bigger EDF organization. But before going into all those, those exciting topics, Raphael, I would like to pause there and ask you to introduce yourself, please. Yeah, you are uh, setting the right frame. So we talk about all those exciting topics. And I think my professional journey really is very, very tight now to those concepts that you talk about, but it didn't start there. I was born in France, grew up in the south of France, moved to Paris to study, went to uh, business school and didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I went in strategy consulting because this is where I was hoping that I would get a view and sort of find a calling. I was very satisfied with this because I got a chance to work in the 2007 timeframe on renewable engagements, which were very rare. And at the time it was very, still very nascent. So of course, renewables have been here since uh, humans have used energy, but their role in the serious energy economy was really just starting, leaving aside hydro. And I started to work for clients that were large companies and those large companies were asking, okay, is that real? Is really solar something that's going to become mainstream? And so solar panels were costing more than three euro watt at the time. And uh, the curves were saying, well, no, the costs are going to go down. And I started to work on those projects and research it myself and really find my calling. And I wanted to work in that sector because of the growth that it promised and of the purpose that you can find in the job. This is really early in 
2007. I mean, it's hard to realize yeah. now, but there's so many solar companies and different renewable companies now. But back in 2007, I don't even have the stats on how much of the electricity generation it was, but it was probably very negligible. It was very, very small. Very recently, I realized that we were inaugurating a site on a large rooftop in New York State, seven megawatts on one single logistics center. This is bigger than the biggest solar farm in Europe that I got to, I wasn't inaugurating it myself, but I attended the inauguration the first week on the job. I made that connection. I was like, hey, we've done quite a bit of a journey because now it's like on roofs, we can do what was the record when I started. And I'm not even talking about the production because panels are more efficient. And I'm not talking about how this inserts so much better into the grid. Anyway, so I didn't know I was, this is where it was going to end. It was, okay, I'll just give it a shot and started to work for what was called EDF New Energies at the time. It was a separately listed subsidiary of the EDF group. So EDF group for people in the US who typically don't know EDF. It's a very large European utility. They're a regulated utility in France, in the UK some business in Italy, Belgium. So it's a large traditional European utility that operates all the nuclear power plants in France, for example. So a lot of baseload and high level of regulation, as you would expect. But they realized that maybe renewables was going to be something meaningful, and they invested rather early in renewables. I joined that company just a couple of years after EDF made that investment to go through a prolonged period of growth for EDF renewables in North America, starting on the wind side and then diversifying away from just being a wind developer and operator and being able to first add solar and then realizing solar has the potential to be built right where the energy is going to be consumed and developing an offering for this, but also looking at development of new forms of renewables, new forms of storage with offshore wind. And I'm not involved in this, but now EDF Renewables is also looking at hydrogen as a form of storage. So it's been a very, a very exciting professional journey. And so today you're at the head of Powerflex, which is a, a subsidiary of this EDF group. Could you give me like an overview of what this Powerflex uh, does? Absolutely. So yeah, I alluded to the realization of the fact that solar can be placed where it's going to be consumed. I think anybody who knows solar, and I actually remember those days in consulting, looking at solar and its future potential, it's one of the very attractive aspects of the technology. It's modular enough that you can actually put the energy where it's going to be consumed. And in the 2015 timeframe, EDF Renewables was seeing the nature of its customers change. Historically, we served utilities that in the U.S. didn't have the capabilities to develop wind projects. They outsourced that to third-party developers, and we would sell them either projects on a turnkey basis, just like you would buy a house and you can just get in the house, or you would rent the house. And we would, in that case, to continue the analogy, build a system and then sign what we call a PPA, a power purchase agreement, long-term contract with the utilities that would buy the power from a project that we would have developed and would own, or maybe we finance it through a third party. Those utilities were our sole customers. Then in the beginning of the 2010, the tech companies, as you know, 
decided to take their energy destinies in their own hands. And they said, okay, we want to be able to procure clean power ourselves. Part of it was being good citizens. Part of it is also writing on the wall as far as risk on energy prices when the energy consumption of some of those tech companies was growing. And they said, okay, we want to secure that energy directly. We want to buy power from you, from one of your wind farm in the Midwest, for example. But then very quickly, the conversation evolved and said, hey, well, we also want to talk about solar. And by the way, can you do solar on this particular facility? And we at EDF Renewables, I tried to use small teams inside the larger development organization to serve what we call the distributed market. By distributed, we mean energy that is going to be produced in a distributed way, as opposed to a centralized way. If you have a nuclear power plant, it is centralized in one location. And then you are going to transport the energy where it's going to be consumed through wires, and it can be hundreds of miles away. Distributed energy is gonna be scattered and is going to be produced where uh, the energy is going to be consumed, or at least much closer to it. So we had those distributed energy teams that were small teams embedded in the larger development organization that was mostly focused on developing those centralized, very large wind farms and solar farms. And Rafael, what was the rationale for those companies to start thinking of distributed generation? You know, if you think of Walmart or Google, why not, why bother into, you know, all of this on-site generation? Why not just buy energy from the grid and make sure it is clean energy from a climate commitment perspective? Is it economic rational? Is it an independence rational? What is driving those companies to do on-site generation? Good question. So I think it's not that easy to determine if the power you're buying from the grid is clean or not. In the US, there are more than 3,000 utilities. Some are in places where you have a lot of hydro energy or nowadays you have a lot of solar. And you know that the share of those renewable sources in the mix you're buying for the power of your machines or your lights in the factory is clean. It's a minority of cases. In most cases, you get a mix. And if you are not satisfied with 26% of renewables in the mix, well, too bad. That's what you're getting. By being able to decide, okay, I'm going to put solar right here and I'm going to be able to control or at least better control the share of renewable energy in what I use you're satisfying your sustainability goal with more certainty, but also from a price standpoint, you avoid the very significant share of your energy cost that comes from that transportation piece. I think we as residential customers, we see this on most bills, you have a share that comes from generation and a share that comes from transportation and network. And that share can be more than 50%. If you completely bypass it by putting the power where you need it, you hedge yourself against those prices of transportation of power or distribution of power increasing significantly in the future. And that's part of the rationale for companies that have the potential because they have large roofs or they have real estate. That's part of their rationale to say, okay, I want on-site solar. So it's really the ability to control your own destiny and know where your power comes from because it's in your backyard. You can control the degree of renewables you're getting. And as you say, the economic saving on distribution. And I think, you know, for those that haven't analyzed in detail the utility bill, like it's underappreciated how much of the cost goes not in the electricity generation, but as you say, in the wires that get it from the power plant all the way to your home. 
and so you said this is the origin story essentially from EDF renewables, observing the change in the market and understanding that it should be addressed differently than through the, the usual utility scale kind of projects and starting to make the small teams that led to PowerFlight creation, right? So yes, we at this point, we realize, okay, there's potential to bring the energy where it's going to be consumed. But if we do it separately uh, with just a couple of people, they end up being underserved. Because if you have the same engineering team, the same legal team, the same human resources team, that is also going to help you for to help someone who works on a 100 megawatt project, the 100 megawatt project, so say a $100 million project, is going to take precedent over your $1 million project. And if you look at them in isolation, this is the right call. If you look at, okay, I'm building a machine so I can do 100 of those $1 million project, then it's not the right call. And that's the realization we came to in 2015. And we said, okay, there is a general trend where solar is getting cheaper. There is an increased concern by customers like you mentioned, like big box retailer at Target is a big customer of ours. Question around the risk of energy supply. You can alleviate that risk by doing distributed energy, but you need to build a machine that's going to serve them well. Said, okay, we'll start with solar because this is where the market is today, but solar won't be enough because solar only produces when the sun shines and we'll need to bring flexibility at the end of the grid with some stationary storage. And also there will be a potentially at the time, there will be a big game changer with electrification of transportation. And so we, we really have those like good old slides dug up from 2015, where we say, okay, well, we'll have those different steps where we'll start with solar, then we'll do solar plus with stationary storage and EV charging. And then in the longer term, we want to have virtual power plants. So we coordinate those different assets in a, in a, an orchestrated fashion, but the stage at which we are with PowerFlex today, to come back to your question on what it is, PowerFlex is the second largest installer of commercial solar in the U S and we have the fourth largest network of EV charging in the US. We focus on commercial customers and our value proposition is to bring intelligent on-site solutions to the customers. It needs to be intelligent thanks, or it can be intelligent thanks to the software that we have developed inside the team. It's today, it's a team of about 300 team members. And we've invested a lot in developing a software that makes the charging as efficient, as clean as possible, coordinates with solar and manages the stationary storage as well. You touched upon it earlier, and I'm curious to delve a bit more on this. You introduced EDF as being this large company and uh, EDF Renewables that was created a few years back. How do you create a company within a company? I'm curious to understand the thought process because you know, a startup, we know how it works. You have a few founders, they have an idea, they raise funds, and they go stage by stage. Is there a funding process at EDF to create a company or how does that work? Yeah. So you do have some venture arms inside EDF and I think a few, well, actually a lot of large corporations have those kind of settings where they can put some seed money into ventures that are started by some of their employees or some of their stakeholders. This is not a PowerFlex started. It was really more a sort of textbook exercise of we look at or a strategy in a desktop exercise, looking at where the markets for renewables are going to go in the future. We have some commercial immediate feedback. We 
weigh the pros and cons, try to take into account the organizational aspects, so the softer aspects of this. And we come up with a plan that I was leading together with the CEO of EDF Renewables North America, who was very proactive in helping the organization, the broader EDF, understand the potential value. And then we had a, a type of weapon that you don't have when you're a startup, which is the ability to make acquisitions. And so I think there we knew that we had some limited but sufficient capex to acquire smaller organizations. And we were very careful not to give those organizations too much love, not to try to integrate those organizations on day one, trying to recognize that even if we were doing some much larger projects, they had figured out something that we had not been able to figure out. And it's in the way they were organized, the type of processes that they had put in place. We preserved this for a rather extended period, at least two years. And then we aggregated those different aspects from different acquisitions. So we made a, an acquisition on the solar side. We tried to make an acquisition on the stationary storage side, but it was too expensive there. So there we sort of incubated the business ourselves. We repurposed a team whose market was not taking off and had them focus on the stationary storage part of the market. And when I say a team, I'm talking about six or seven individuals. So we started small and then grew from that. And then on the electric vehicle side, we also made an acquisition of a five people company, the original PowerFlex, which was a, an offshoot of Caltech. And we let those different entities evolve separately for a couple of years. And then in 2021, we felt like it was the right time for us to put all those pieces together. We reused the PowerFlex name because it illustrates that flexibility that we want to offer at the end of the grid that you and I talked about. That was good to go through that exercise. It was actually not that easy. Even if it's more organizations, you are also facing some corporate cultural challenges, just like you would when you have large mergers, making sure that we were starting from the strategy to make sure that everybody was aligned. And then from there, building the organization that was going to serve us. And then we did that. So that, that was late 2020, early 2021. And then in 2022, we realized that the level of competition that we were facing in those markets, especially if we are trying to develop our own technology, which we do, and we think is essential to be differentiated and offer more value to our customers, then you need more investment than what EDF can provide at a time when they have demand from everything from offshore wind to, if you look at the ultimate parent company, nuclear as well. So we went out and got funding from an outside investor, Manulife Infrastructure, which is a very large infrastructure fund that is looking at what the sector calls next infrastructure. So even if what we're doing is not entirely current infrastructure, it's not like you're investing in a dam today, but you're investing in a platform, PowerFlex, that is working on developing future infrastructure. And that's why we were fortunate to have Manulife come and join us as a large minority holder of PowerFlex. And now we have this entity where EDF remains the majority holder, but we have an owner's shoulder. And that's a $100 million funding, if I'm not wrong, right? So congratulations on that significant funding round. And it's interesting to see the unique strength that a large organization like EDF can have, right? Because when you started, you had this financial ability to acquire some key capabilities that are critical to make what PowerFlex is today. 
And we're seeing a bit of a similar story play across several energy and climate themes where you have both the startup that are, you know, emerging in those fields and also larger groups entering those fields, either directly or through acquisitions. So I think it's a very healthy competition to just make sure we're deploying as much as possible and as fast as possible this technology, which is really the end goal here. You mentioned a product. Let me pause on that for a bit. Could you explain a bit more what the product, you mentioned the adaptive load management, which is the software that you have. I suppose you're not making the solar panels or the chargers that yourself at PowerFlex, you're procuring them from different suppliers. So help me understand where is there a competitive edge in terms of technology from PowerFlex across all those complicated systems and integration? And where are you just using something which is a commodity today in the market? Yeah. So it's a very good question. And I think the uh, definition of product here can vary from one competitor to the other. We do not manufacture our own chargers, but we do have hardware that we manufacture because it's essential to bring the software capabilities on site. So the load management controller is part of the PowerFlex X suite, and that's a box like TV size box that we put on site that allows to control the chargers without having to put LTE, a cellular connection on each and every charger that allows us to save on the operations of the charger very significantly. And that enables us to scale our installations on average or installations of more than 35 chargers. The largest one we have is at Airport of Los Angeles, where we have more than a thousand chargers. You're going to put more of those load management controllers. And that integration between the hardware and the software, so choosing what chargers we're using, choosing what battery manufacturers we're using, and making sure that our software, the intelligence we bring with those optimization algorithm, is actually turning into real action in those devices in the hardware. That's an essential part of, of the product as well. And then Another a third aspect, so you have the, the intelligence, you have the integration hardware software. And then a third aspect is the interaction between the product and the stakeholders. And those stakeholders are first the customer. So we have an interface that allows the customer to look at how an installation is producing on the solar side, is charging or discharging on the battery side or on the charging side. That can be customized for certain types of customers or we haven't talked too much about the fleet market, but that's a very interesting market for all the topics we talked about from impact on carbon to actual economic attractiveness for the customers. So a company like DHL that we work with on the charging side is very serious about electrification because the total cost of ownership for those delivery van when electrified is actually lower. So it makes economic sense for them but they need to find the right strategy and the right partner to charge those vehicles. Well, they also need to see when the vehicles are charging and not charging. And that's the third aspect that the product offers. It's the ability to look instantaneously and also in retrospect with some reporting, who is charged when, if something is not going right, and there will be things that won't be going right when you're deploying those systems, being sure you get an alarm and you can react. So the, one of the other stakeholders that needs to have that interface with the product is our own team of asset management and customer success who are receiving alarms when there is an issue and can dispatch technicians if needed and before that try to troubleshoot remotely 
So you're really on the control layers and software, right? So you have a base of hardware, which is a, a set of commodity components you're purchasing, and then you have a proprietary control hardware, like the box you mentioned, and, and a set of software for optimization and the monitoring and visualization for the end control of the end customer. Exactly. That's the product as you could package it. But even if you have that, it's not enough. I say on top of that, you need to be able, at least at this stage of maturity of the market, to also still be a project company. So we have a product, but that product is not going to meet much demand if we are not able to go hand in hand with our customers or actually rather take their hands sometimes and say, hey, we're going to help you. We're going to deploy that solution and we're going to be here to manage your projects. Being both a project company and a product company is still essential for PowerFlex. There may be a day where the maturity of the market is such that you can deploy the products without having to provide the turnkey services. That day hasn't come yet. We are still at a maturity stage where we think, and I think our customers would agree, we bring value by delivering the whole solution. And how do you scale that turnkey model that you mentioned, right? Because that's a very labor-intensive model where you need to educate your customer. You have a commercial team that does that. Then you probably have a project management team that overviews the project and addresses customer concerns and issues. You can't have that in every location in the US all the time. So how do you scale a project organization? You need to find a good match and more than one actually, but you need to find customers that are looking at deploying programs. It's the only way we are going to be able to continue to scale that business. We've experienced good growth, but you're absolutely correct. It's not a challenge specific to PowerFlex. It's a challenge that has been hanging over the heads of all the people who have seen that potential for CNI, commercial and industrial, but haven't been able to turn it into sustainable profit because you need to get a market that is mature enough so you can roll out very large programs. The most advanced we've done is with Prologis today, which has still a lot of potential, but we need more of those. So we are able to manage the overheads that we need to be able to deploy the solution. So in the short term, we will be able to do this because we are seeing a turn in the market on the more historical core offering of solar plus storage. I think in the longer term, the ability to increase the share of revenue for PowerFlex that come from just selling the product has to increase. And we're already seeing this. We are able to sell the PowerFlex chargers and the software that goes with it without having to do the turnkey. So we have customers that are using their own general contractors and we can sell the system to their general contractors. We have invested in developing some product specs that allow those general contractors to build a system without us. There will be another way to scale that in the future, but then it doesn't exactly answer your question because you're not doing the turnkey anymore. But for PowerFlex as a company, it's increasing the share of those systems that we can sell, we say product only, and not necessarily do the turnkey. That's an evolution that's gonna come in the next five to 10 years. We're already seeing the trend starting. It's really about focusing on selling the product and the equipment technology and another industry that already exists, the general contractor or the EPC will take care of actually installing this in, you know, in a specific city, in a specific customer, anywhere in the US. You really have the 
you leverage a huge network that is already in place of all those contractors and not leveraging PowerFlex workforce for this service, essentially. That's the idea. Got it. Fantastic. And let's get to, we'll get to virtual power plants eventually. Let's start maybe with what you just mentioned around EV charging, which I understand it is linked to on-site solar generation. You know, taking a very 10,000 feet view on this, you have a combustion car today using gas. You replace them, you know, over the next years, hopefully, or 10, 20 years with electric vehicles. You install a lot of chargers at Target and other retailers and commercial facilities. You know, what is the big deal? Help me understand why is this a challenge today? Why is the installation of an electric vehicle charger impacting the grid and making it difficult for those large commercial customers that are trying to install this? There is a challenge for the customers and there is a challenge for the grid. And those are pretty separate today. If you look at the challenge for the customers, they have to make a bet or at least anticipate on demand because it's not obvious that you need a hundred chargers today on a parking lot. You may be okay with 10. Do I make that investment in a hundred chargers today? Do I just put 10? And there are implications on the electrical infrastructure for those customers. That's at the customer level. And then at the grid level, there is a challenge that is becoming a reality today, but is not really an issue today. It's going to become an issue very quickly, given the pace at which we are electrifying transportation. But if you look at it today, it's still manageable. Is it a question of energy? No. The kilowatt hours, I just want to use that analogy to differentiate between the capacity, the power and the energy. The power is sort of the width and the depths of your river bed. Okay. And then Energy is the flow, the amount of water that is actually going through that particular riverbed. So it's not a question of energy. The electric vehicles are going to increase demand for energy. But in general, the trend is that thanks to energy efficiency, consumption is flat or reducing even in a country that is growing like the US, especially if you factor in self-generation, so mostly solar, the net need is going down without electric vehicles. Now, if you add electric vehicles, it actually grows a little bit, but it's small. I think the type of projections that you're seeing is something to the tune of 2% a year by 2050. So it's completely manageable for a system as central as the electric grid. It's not going to be a challenge to increase the output of energy, so the flow of water in your river, by 2% a year. The challenge is that everybody may need to get that energy at the same time. And so there, the widths and depths of your riverbed may not be sufficient. So that's a power issue that the grid will be facing and pretty soon, depending on where you look, because of the new demand coming from those electric vehicles. If it all comes at the same time, you may be in a situation where you blow up the grid. If you look at places where the grid is constrained, like Texas and the US, and Texas is not a very electrified market from a transportation standpoint today, but it will be. The parity is coming. The car manufacturers are doing a very good job at not only marketing small little European looking cars that are electric, but also going with the bigger trucks. It will invade every part of the nation. And then if you have those parts of the nation where the grid is constrained like Texas, and you see all the vehicles charging at the same time in the 2025, 2027 timeframe, if they all charge at the wrong time, you blow up the grid. And that's the challenge at the grid level. And I think you can reconcile between the challenge at the grid level and the challenge for the customers 
by offering the type of solution that we have at PowerFlex. We call it ALM for Adaptive Load Management. And what we preach for is to have ubiquitous level two economic charging everywhere. So during the day, if you have a dwell time, so if you're sitting on a parking lot for more than three hours, this is the perfect solution. So you make the most of that solar energy that's going to be produced en masse because solar is the cheapest way to produce electricity today. And you use it for something very useful, which is charging the vehicles. And that's how we try to reconcile the two. So you give Target as an example. Target is a solar customer of ours today, solar storage. It's not a customer on the EV charging side yet. I hope this will come. But our core customers are those commercial entities that have a long dwell time during the day. So workplaces like office space is a perfect case for us. We also are able to serve places like airports where customers are going to stay for a long time and we can adjust the price if the customer wants that based on the amount of solar energy that is produced. So let me play that back on the impact on the grid. And let's try to put some numbers behind it just to comprehend how sizable that impact from an electric vehicle charging can be. Correct me if my calculations are wrong here. If you're using a level two charger, you mentioned this earlier, it's 10 kilowatt about around that. If you're using a fast DC charger, that's a charger that you would see on the Tesla network, the Tesla superchargers. This could be 250 kilowatt. I think a US home would use around a few kilowatt of power on average. Yeah, let's say three, three or four kilowatt. So if you're plugging the car, you're adding three homes at the minimum with a level two charger and up to 80 homes if you're having a fast DC charger. That's one car. Now, if you take the example you're taking of Target or an airport and you have 50 cars, 50 electric vehicles sitting, that's, you know, 150 to 4,000 houses that you've just added in terms of electricity consumption at a single commercial site. And that's for an electric car. Now, if you're using a, you know, a medium duty truck or a large truck, that, that's probably several order of magnitude higher. So essentially, when you're saying this is constraining the grid, this is because if you have a fleet of electric cars plugged in somewhere, you're almost adding a village of consumption. If you're not controlling for how this consumption is happening, what kind of charger is happening. So it's not, what I'm trying to say, it's not as easy as let's just put a, you know, a lot of DC fast chargers everywhere and not control the way charging is being done today. Is that a fair, my numbers are probably off, but is that a fair assessment? No, I think in the details, somebody could challenge the numbers, but the order of magnitude is absolutely right. And the additional dimension that we need to take into account is the time dimension. Yeah, if everybody is doing this at the same time and at the wrong time when the rest of the grid is demanding a lot of electricity, this is going to be a big problem. If you have those vehicles at 10 kilowatts or 200 kilowatt, if you're going on DC fast chargers, but they are charging at a time when the grid can support it. And there are times when the grid actually would welcome more demand. You turn your issue into a huge opportunity for the energy transition. That's what I love about the pairing and the convergence between renewable generation. So the fact that you produce electricity with renewables and in particular with solar and this new form of demand, this complete new paradigm that we're entering into with electrification of transportation. 
they actually really go hand in hand. You're not going to solve one without the other. They're both responsible for the largest share of greenhouse gas emissions in the US. It used to be the power sector was the largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. And in the 2017, 2018 timeframe, it was overtaken by transportation in the US. So if you combine the two, it's more than 50% of all the greenhouse gas emissions in the US. But if you're able to produce more renewables and electrify your transportation, so the electrons that go in those cars are actually green, you're killing two birds with one stone. And that's really what we want to do with PowerFlex. And so this is what you mentioned, right? The adaptive load management technology that PowerFlex has. And let me just try to understand this in a simple way. And it's probably the right time. I'm impressed. We took an, half an hour and didn't mention the duck curve yet, but it's probably the right time to talk about it. Help me understand, or rather, let me give an example, right? Of the duck curve. So the duck curve is essentially the net demand of electricity, net of renewable production. So if you remove what solar and wind produce on the grid, you're left with a certain demand that has to be met by the other form of electricity generation. The challenge that this duck curve has essentially a peak in the morning and a peak in the evening and falls pretty low during the day when solar generation is maximum. It happens that we also move around with our cars in the morning and the evening typically, and therefore EV chargers are plugged in the morning and the evening, making this duck curve even higher in terms of peaks. This is a very simplified version, and I'm sure you've seen much more detailed cases, but help me understand how that technology from PowerFlex actually helps smooth out this issue. Yeah. Thanks for your, your description of the duck curve. I think electric vehicles have the potential to create a monster, a sort of double-headed duck with head in the early morning or double adder later at night if you charge too much at night but it also has the potential to solve it by just feeding the belly of that duck if we're able to put enough infrastructure in place that incentivizes drivers to charge during the day and harvest the sun we have the potential to resolve that challenge that california is already facing if you take a place like new york state it is facing very similar duck-looking type of curves. What we want to do with PowerFlex is offer a technology, so ALM is Adaptive Load Management, that allows companies to put a large number of chargers in place without having to rebuild the infrastructure entirely. So we have a UL-certified system that allows to put up to four times the number of chargers that you would otherwise put on a given electrical panel. So to give some orders of magnitude, if you have a 100 kilowatt panel, you are going to put 10 kilowatt chargers. Well, instead of that, we're gonna allow you to put 40 because the software is going to take into account the requirements of the drivers. So you arrive in the morning and you say, okay, today I'm gonna to have to leave after four hours. And then the next person comes in and it's, okay, default setting, I just, I'm going to leave after eight hours, as I typically do, or after six hours, depending on the default setting that you entered in the PowerFlex X application on the mobile. And then the software is going to optimize between the different requirements of the different drivers. We can also take into account some other constraints that are coming from the grid, for example. And we are able to avoid that double head of a duck at the site level, so for a given customer. And that has benefits that are going beyond a particular site. If you multiply those sites that are using 
adaptive mode management that go where people are leaving their cars parked for the whole day, you really bring a lot of benefit to the whole system. So it's really about meeting the needs of the electric vehicle users and minimizing the cost of infrastructure, right? Not having to upgrade the equipment that you need to have more chargers. You mentioned electrical panel, which is essentially right, the diameter of the pipe that goes into this facility. Exactly. I think it's only the beginning. If you get into this new paradigm of fueling the vehicles, leaving behind the model of the gas station, if you're able to offer economically sensible infrastructure that's going to make the charging ubiquitous, wherever you're going to go and park, you're going to have a charger and you can control that charger. That charger doesn't need to give you the 200 kilowatt or 250 kilowatt you're going to find at a Tesla fast charging station. You're only going to do three road trips every year. Talking about your day-to-day -day trips. If you are developing a new system where you control chargers and they are everywhere, then you can imagine a lot of new parameters that you take into account to make those vehicles the ultimate source of flexibility that we need to make our electric grid clean. You're going to be able to change the price depending on when you charge, depending on the wind is blowing or the sun is shining and the quality or the, the carbon intensity of the energy you're producing. This is what I find very, very exciting with the electrification of transportation. It's a completely new model that we can invent. And you're mentioning the new model from the input, so the vehicle receiving the electricity. There's also a whole new model in the vehicle actually providing electricity to the grid, which opens an entire new opportunities. And this, to be frank, is one of the areas I'm very excited by where, by definition, electric vehicles are batteries on wheels. So they're really great energy storage assets. And they've been already bought for other uses. So there's no need to invest additional money for energy storage on the grid. My sense is that this is, you know, vehicle to grid, bilateral charging, this is not a very mature technology today in the sense that it is not widely deployed. There are a few auto OEMs that are providing bi-directional chargers, but it's still very emerging today. How are you seeing this opportunity come with your customers or moving forward or powerful? Like, is that a short-term opportunity you're seeing where, you know, drivers could monetize their batteries and actually make money and help the grid? Or is this something more medium to long-term? I'm also fascinated by the potential that this is. To answer your question, I think it's a mid to long term. Let's go back to the duck curve you were describing and what I was trying to illustrate with the feed the belly of the duck. So yeah, you're charging the vehicles during the 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. window where less energy is needed and a lot of solar power is producing. You still have an issue at the end of the day. So if you look at the California grid, it's the 5 to 9 p.m. window where the grid has the highest constraint because people drive back home and they power on their TVs, their refrigerators, the temperature in the hotter months still need to be reduced with air conditioning. Even if you've charged the vehicle during the day, you're still gonna have a peak and the duck is still there. But if you're able to plug your vehicle in your home or your apartment complex, and you're able to use that electricity to do the things you do every day, like powering your refrigerator or watching your TV, you're finally solving the issue in a more holistic way than just making the most of the sun during the day. The challenges are technical, but the technical aspects, I think, are not hard to overcome. We've all used batteries. We use batteries, the same lithium-ion batteries in our day-to-day -day lives in electronics and everywhere. It's very easy to discharge. 
you may have some of those battery packs and you can discharge. It's like, it's exactly the same technology. The challenge is a little bit on the technical side, making sure you don't do it in a way that is dangerous for the receiving end or is harming the vehicle or wearing it out. But it's mostly a question of regulation and a question of commercial interest from the car OEMs. The regulation piece is, and I think this will get solved, but it's a new type of asset that the regulators have to comprehend and deal with and categorize. It's not really a battery. It's a battery on wheel. Okay. But how do I categorize that? Even the categorization of batteries on the legislation about electrical networks is not obvious and it's still evolving. So that's a challenge, making sure that there is a right framework of regulation. So regulated utilities don't get spooked by those large amount of electricity that can be injected in places where they didn't see any generation before. And then the car OEMs, they also need to be, to get comfortable with the fact that their batteries are going to be used for something else. I think they are conceptually getting more comfortable with the impact it has on the degradation of the battery. So the life expectancy of the battery can be affected by the type of usage. The studies that I've seen at least show that it's not so much about doing bidirectional. It's more about the way you drive, for example. The way you drive is going to be more impactful. The state of charge at which you let your battery stand is going to be more impactful than whether you do bidirectional charging. The car OEMs are also seeing an opportunity there. They are seeing the potential for them to be more than selling just cars and then maybe selling also energy on wheels. It's an interesting aspect that maybe we can touch on when we talk about competition. That change of paradigm reshuffles the deck completely as far as who provides that essential good energy to consumers of all sort being residential customer or commercial customers. Yeah, it is actually my hope to accelerate vehicle to grid that commercial OEMs, you know, enter this as a commercial opportunity for them, as you say, because it's a whole new business opportunity for them. And they really hold the keys with the regulator, obviously, Bad. to make this happen because they're the one that can set standards to the chargers and also provide, for instance, bi-directional chargers to make this happen. And I mean, Tesla is always a, a bit of a case apart, but we see them acting as a utility now in Texas, though it is not yet with bi-directional charging, maybe soon. Yeah, I mean, if you talk about the car manufacturers, I love to highlight what Ford has done. So if you've seen some of the commercials for the F-150 Lightning, it has bi-directional capabilities. I think Ford may be the most vocal about those capabilities. And the way they market it, I think is excellent because I think it would be a mistake to just market those vehicles as green machines that are going to help only a certain part of the political spectrum in fighting against climate change. This is not what they're doing. They're talking about the bi-directional capabilities that the F-150 brings to people who are on-site working and may need to power their tools. They're talking about the bi-directional capabilities that the vehicles may provide in places that have undergone a natural disaster. I think this is very good. And seeing Ford leading the way, you're gonna see others. We know that others are gonna be very proactive soon as well on the bi-directional side. I'm extremely excited about this. Now we need to make the economics work. It's another topic we can talk about as well, but the regulatory framework also needs to set the stage so people can be rewarded for the services they provide with bidirectional. It's fascinating how the lines are blurring from a competitive angle. 
I was having a discussion uh, on a previous episode with Sebastian Bernig from Instagrid, who is making uh, batteries for mobile applications like construction workers. And the example you're giving on the F-150 is a great one, right? Where a auto EM might actually enter a space which is mobile batteries, which uh, does not belong initially at all. You mentioned degradation as well in batteries. I think this is a concern definitely for the commercial, the auto OEMs. I'm wondering how much of a concern is that for the customers as well, especially when it is hard to understand what causes degradation, you know, what is your state of health of the battery? So basically how much energy can I still put in and out of my battery? How do you see this evolving in the future? Like it will there be, you know, some sort of norm or rating or some more transparency on this? Cause I can see this as a bottleneck for vehicle to grid. Yeah. I do think this is going to be a concern to overcome, but if you look at data that I think was published by Nissan in Japan about some bidirectional chargers on older models like the Nissan Leaf, and they haven't really suffered from the usage of the batteries for grid purposes. In that case, if I recall correctly, it was some form of grid services. So you can do frequency regulation, for example, with a battery, and you could do some of that with a battery from a car, but also just the discharge at a reasonable rate into a building, home or otherwise, I think that's not proving to be that impactful on the battery so far. I think to convince the customer, there is another aspect. And by customer here, I mean the drivers. The amount that we're talking about, if you look at them on an individual basis, they're not very significant, especially as we are early in the adoption of electric vehicles, and it's mostly affluent drivers that are driving electric vehicles. Every other one is a Tesla. If you look at the US market, they're not too price sensitive. They don't really mind if it costs them three times to go to a Tesla fast charger or any fast charger compared to charging at work with better managed energy. And by the same token, they don't really care if you tell them, hey, you're going to save $2 a day by using that bidirectional program that you may participate in the future. I think finding what's going to be uh, helping drivers to participate in this, to make it very meaningful at the system level, that's not going to be easy. I think the parallel that I see is that of Nest and other smart thermostats, which are doing a little better now, but really struggle in the beginning to enroll customers. I think now the utilities are helping and it's the enrollment rates are better. I think we're going to face the same type of challenges. So it may not be so much the harm that bi-directional may do to my car. I think the car manufacturers will provide guidance. So you protect that like on the state of charge or will just manage it automatically. So it doesn't harm the battery too much. I think it's more going to be, okay, how do we convince individual drivers to participate in those programs. Yeah, it's really having the right incentives and you're right, Nest is a good example, all the, the demand response voluntary programs that you can sign up to. If it's about a few dollars at the end of the month, you might only convince so many people there. So maybe let's come back to what's real today, on-site solar generation and EV chargers. I would love to pause there and we've talked of commercial uh, customers so far, help me understand how far along are they in the energy transition? You know, if I look at electricity generation at the utility scale level, there are reports telling you that there's more and more solar, more and more wind on the grid and very ambitious target for 80, 
clean generation, you know, 2035, 40, 45, depend on where you live. Where are we in the commercial industrial world? Is it starting? Because, you know, when you travel, you see a lot of empty roofs. So should they all be filled by solar? Well, you're asking the wrong person if you want me to tell you no. But absolutely. They should absolutely. I think we're not nowhere because it has started and you have some corporate players that are becoming very serious about making the most of that rooftop real estate or the parking lot real estate where you can put solar carports. But I think depending on how you count, it's between 5 and 10% of the addressable rooftop potential on the commercial side. I'm not talking about the residential market on the commercial side that has been tapped in the US. There are places like California, they're a little more advanced. There are places that have a ton of potential like the Southwest, Texas in particular, that have done basically nothing to make the most of those roofs that can be a perfect place to put solar panels that are not going to bother anybody that have not made the most of those parking lots where you don't have to worry about it being an eyesore. It's already an eyesore. It's a parking lot. So put some solar carports there. It's actually going to provide a benefit to the drivers. It protects, depending on the designs you use, it's going to protect the vehicles more than having nothing. And they're going to be a perfect starting point so you can put more chargers. And you're not going to bother anybody with those. You don't have to face the same type of uh, scrutiny that you face if you're putting those solar panels on the desert from an environment standpoint, there needs to be some more control. I think there's still too much control on the utility scale side. That's another debate, but there will always be more control than if you're putting those means of clean generation in urban settings where they're not going to bother anybody. I think we should absolutely go and tap that potential. So there is the disturbance aspect, but it's also what we started with, the fact that you're going to produce that energy right where it's going to be consumed. And if you tailor it well, if you build programs, so California has done net metering, we're starting the third vintage of it. And then the New York state, for example, has done a more complex program, but that really tries to capture that local value of energy. If you put the solar systems and the battery systems stationary or on wheels, where they are needed at a very granular level, at the fetal level, you're helping the overall system much more. And that's the potential of distributed generation that we need to tap. We can talk about those players that are doing more than others and why. I think it's an interesting distinction that you see between some competitors that are doing better than others. Can we actually start with those that are doing less than others? I'm curious why 5-10% is so low. You know, what is the bottleneck today? If it makes sense economically, to have on-site generation. Of course, it makes sense from a climate perspective, but let's assume you don't care about this. If it makes sense economically, what is the bottleneck today for a parking owner or somebody has land available used for parking or a roof to not install solar? Yeah, so it doesn't make economic sense everywhere. If you're in Texas today, you're probably better off buying your power from the grid in most cases than installing your own solar and waiting for, in the case of Texas, it's probably going to be more than 12 year payback for your investment with some assumptions on how prices are going to evolve in the future. That's because electricity cost is so low in Texas versus the other states. Correct. It is low and it's the electricity you pay. So it's generation that is cheap and it's also the competitive markets and the distributed electricity, the, the electricity that you actually buy that is cheaper today. It will evolve because the cost of solar are continuing to go down and Texas has 
you probably know, Texas is the second largest renewable state in the U.S. So they're able to recognize it when it makes economic sense, whether it's clean or not. I think the challenge with distributed energy in a place like Texas is that it's still more expensive than buying it from the grid. Even in places where solar, commercial solar has taken off or taken off more, like California, you had to add the regulator stepping in and building those net metering systems that allow you to get credit for the energy you produce when you're not actually consuming. Because most of our customers, they have some sort of dirt curve looking, although the belly of the duck is much flatter, profile of consumption. They also have a peak in the morning and a peak in the evening, which you're not going to be able to serve with solar. And so you're still going to produce an excess of solar energy. That solar energy is going to be useful to somebody else in your neighborhood or in, on the electric grid. And the net metering system gives you credit for that extra energy. You can't just blanket your roof with as many panels as you want. It is limited by your own consumption. If you're producing with your solar at a time when you're not actually consuming, it's going to be netted out at the end of the month or at the end of the year, depending on the system. And you still need that in most cases until batteries are cheap enough that you can really have your system in total isolation based on solar. Is there a difference in the market on the size of the customers where maybe, you know, the bigger customers like the retail chains and others have greater awareness of the potential of solar and EV chargers versus maybe smaller and medium-sized commercial customers, which are probably harder to reach and costlier to reach for a company like PowerFlex. How many understand this dynamic in the commercial market? Yeah, I think your intuition is right. It is a bit of a choice by design too, where we at PowerFlex focus on large corporate companies. So Fortune 500 companies are our typical customers. And we gravitate towards those that have a larger real estate footprint. We're able to think programmatically that are not just going to look at one car dealership, but they're looking at 4,000 stores in the U.S. And this is where we think we can make the economic model for PowerFlex work best because we are able to replicate the standards that we design with that particular customer in commercial you're always facing the challenge of being a little too big to be perfectly standardized and do what you see in residential solar where it's, okay, it's 10 modules this way on this side of your roof. You like it, you sign, you don't like it, I move on. You cannot do that with customers that are making decisions in the two to $5 million range for each and every site. But you're also too small to afford the type of customization that you can afford on a $200 million solar or wind installation that you're going to put in the desert. So we have to find that type of customers that have real serious goals about monetizing their footprint, rooftop and parking lots. And then with them, we can work on reducing those overhead costs that are essential to the long-term viability of a company like PowerFlex. So in the end, we try to work with the smaller commercial customers that may have need for like a, I don't know, 50 to 200 kilowatt rooftop installations. We cannot make it economically work. I think it remains a very local type of business. And those customers are better served by residential players that can into the small commercial segment 
what we're good at is looking at customers like Prologis, for example, very largest real estate owner in the world, and their warehouses are perfect to put solar. And we work with them to identify the places where solar makes the most economic sense. And then we deploy that solar as cost effectively as possible with them. Understood. Because essentially, if you're taking a smaller retail shop, you're saying it's a similar need than a large house, maybe. So that is better served by a, a residential solar panel installer that might be more used to the smaller project size and smaller size of deals. What about residential customers? I understand it's a very different need for the, the small residential customers. Yeah. But for the large customers that uh, you know might have a multi-unit house, a multi-unit building, a huge parking lot. Is that a similar need to the commercial segment? Absolutely. And we didn't realize that until the pandemic hit. And then the core customers on the electric vehicle charging side were not coming to the office anymore. Or typical installation was California campus or a tech company that has high demand for EV charging that doesn't want to see their employees leaving a meeting because they get an alert that they are off the waiting list on a one of the 10 chargers that they have in the parking lot. We were coming and saying, okay, we're going to put 100 chargers and you're not going to have to worry about your employees leaving the office. Well, after the pandemic and everybody working from home, it wasn't that much of a concern. We're seeing, just as a quick digression before I come back to the residential market, we're seeing actually this changing now and charging as an amenity becoming a differentiator for employers who want to attract employees back in the office. But during the pandemic, it was not happening clearly. And so we had to go where the customers were. And the long dwell times during the day were at apartment complexes and homes. We are not able to serve homes today. On the solar side, we have thought about it. We have seen what our cousins and sister companies in Europe were doing. It's a completely different market. It's a fascinating market, but it's a topic for another day. We were not willing to go and serve individual homes. We were very skeptical about the multi-unit dwellings, so the apartment complexes in the US, but we realized they have exactly the same type of need and the benefits of adaptive load management, not having to upgrade your electrical panel and serving everybody, being able to also charge individual drivers individually without having to spread the charge sort of evenly without consideration for how much energy they use. All this was applying very well to multi-unit dwellings. And now it's a segment of the market that we are serving very much more efficiently and very happily. People don't spend their days in their apartments anymore, like in the height of the pandemic, but you can still do a lot of load management over 24 hours. And we offer that to those MUD customers. So PowerFlex is doing power generation decarbonization with distributed on-site solar is doing EV charger, so enabling transportation electrification. It's working for commercial customers and residential customers for those multi-dwelling housing. What is the vision for PowerFlex in the coming years? Yep. So first, you imply this, when you list the things we do, we have to be disciplined about what we do. So we're not serving the whole residential market. Actually, typically our customers on the residential side are not residential customers. It's the property owners or the property managers. So we, we try to stick to being very focused on commercial customers. The challenge for me is to make sure that we leverage the differentiation that we've built for ourselves by being early in identifying the convergence between solar and EV charging, but doing this while being disciplined about where we expand. 
if we do that, I think we have a tremendous path ahead of us. That path ultimately will get us back to that 2015 slide and the third step where the value that we'll bring to the system overall is the ability to coordinate those assets, the distributed assets. So they actually play a role on both sides of the meter. So you're not only helping your office building to manage the charging of their vehicles, but also with the agreement of the drivers, you're exporting some of that energy on the grid to do frequency regulation and you're being paid by the DSO or by the utility. This is the vision that we have for Paraflex ultimately is that ability to contribute at the end of the grid to a broader integration of renewables and electrification of transportation by coordinating those assets in an intelligent way. There's no way to monetize this today. I don't even want to see a line in the business plan that shows revenues coming from that part, but that's really the vision ultimately. We need to better leverage the ability to distribute generation. And I think Paraflex has a very important role to play by focusing on the commercial customers. That's fantastic to hear. In no way meant to imply that you're doing too many things. As you say, right, that's a unique opportunity that you have at Powerflex to actually be at the center of transportation and power generation and one of those virtual power plant operator or operating system, as you want to call it. Raphael, I could talk for hours about VPPs, but it's, it's been a real pleasure chatting today. I really appreciate you sharing your experience and your vision for Powerflex around those topics of on-site generation, EV charge or electrification, and uh, vehicle to grid. I wish you the best to convert all those warehouses to solar and chargers. And uh, thank you so much again for spending this time together. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks for spreading the word and allowing a healthy debate around how we make that energy transition successful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rafael. Congratulations, you finished this episode. Thank you so much for listening until the end. And if you liked it, please don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review. This is really helpful to be more visible in the rankings and to be able to keep inviting the best of climate tech entrepreneurs in this show. Thank you so much. And I'll catch you on our next episode very soon.